0: Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader.
1: So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. Our guest in today's episode is a friend of ours, a certified executive coach focused on entrepreneurs who want to increase their authenticity, clarity, output, and performance. He has worked on both sides of the venture industry, one as an investor, as a startup manager, and as an interim CFO. We're thrilled to be chatting today with Julius Bachmann. Together we answer questions like, what is high performance really? How is being an entrepreneur like being an athlete? We get into best practices on how to handle high stakes conflict, and Julius shares real stories and examples of individuals who made strong transformations as a result of coaching and shares his tips on how to make the most out of coaching. You really might need to take notes on this one, so do bring some pen and paper, And let's get right into it.
0: Hello, hello, hello. Yet another episode of Teams at Work today with Julius Bachmann. Hi, Julius.
2: Hello. Thank you very much for having me, the two of you.
0: Super excited. Uh, We met a few years ago when you were still in the VC world. I actually met you as a venture capitalist. And now you're not only a founder of an amazing professional personal growth startup app uh, journey, but also... A founder um, coach, which is basically a specialized direction of an executive coach. So really, really excited to have this convo with you. Obviously, we're all interested in in growing and professional growth in particular. But my first question actually goes right into that topic. How did all of this happen? How did you go from investor to founder and to coach?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I sometimes wonder myself. So um, as you mentioned, we met maybe six, seven years ago, I want to say in Berlin. And at that point, I was working with this fund in Berlin called Redstone, and was there full time managing a smaller seed fund, a twenty million uh, seed fund, uh, investing into uh, early stage technology and the financial technology space, and also in the real estate technology space. So what you would call fintech and prop tech in jargon. Um, and uh, and at some point, um. Uh, I started realizing specifically sitting in board meetings, like who is that person who is going, Hey, here are all those opinions that you know, dear founder that you've now taken in and like, how do you make sense of all of that? And how do you personally grow? And then I thought, okay, um, clearly there is like a gap. There's like a role that's not being filled by a person that's not on the board. That is not, part of the team in the company and I wondered who that might be. And then later on, I had then left this investing role at some point to get more to the operator side and had gone through a number of interim CFOs or chief financial officer positions. And I saw a similar pattern where, because I was only an interim executive executives from the team, mostly the founders would start to confide in me and start to discuss their challenges. And I thought like, okay, so clearly there is no one who's actually fulfilling that role. And that pointed me towards like actually getting a proper coaching education as in like a certification and starting to work exclusively with people in the venture community. And that's 90% founders, uh, 10% investors or other members of the, of the ecosystem. And so that's how that came together. and then. Journey is like another chapter of that story, but this is how I became a coach.
0: That sounds amazing. (laughs) And it's very timely, obviously. I think when we met already, it was pretty much, I think this like feeling in the ecosystem, oh, psychology and like soft factors and human relationships. This is kind of all like a byproduct of like the business things we do and we don't really need to care about it as much. And now I think we're much wiser and much smarter and further ahead. So really, really glad to. Have you on the other side, not only on the founding table, but also on, uh, yeah, the insightful, mature and wise table and helping our VC colleagues also realize how important this is. I think this is still a, I think we've come a long way, but this is still also a very, very important topic. On the coaching though, as uh, I think we also have a few bunch of users, I think amongst our listeners and we like to dive deeper What is actually your approach when you coach? So what school of thought do you use or like, how do you approach your coaching?
2: Um, How do I approach my coaching? It is on the foundation side, uh, systemic coaching, but then I think I built my own framework kind of based on my experience, investing in companies, working with companies, having started my own companies and... I try to work holistically on the levels of the personal development and personal wellness, the team's development and the team's wellness in the company, and then the business's development and the business's wellness. It's just that wellness, quote-unquote, is defined in different ways as we're moving through these stages. And on all of these three stages, um, I typically want to explore questions
0: and how do you define it actually that begs the question of course
2: (laughs) well oh yeah sure i mean when we talk about wellness on the personal level for example then we're talking about like truly like do you feel well do you feel well in your body are you actually equipped to do this kind of work i think even in previous episodes some of your guests have reported like the intensity of being a founder which is predominantly my client group Are you just physically and mentally and psychologically equipped to take that kind of intensity? I mean, the two of you, you can tell stories about that. Right. But there are other elements, right? Are you uh, on a like family and like maybe your life partner relationship level healthy? Is that something that is troubling you right now? Because those challenges, they are going to show up in the professional sphere. And not only for you personally, but then they're going to move into your relationships in the professional realm that will have, because you're the founder, that will have business impacts. And so I am a very firm believer in making all of it part of the work and trying to work as holistically as I can. And just to continue on that, there is an element of intention, so I will always probe whether um, the level of intention and the kind of goals and the kind of timeframes that are attached to the goals are actually matching up across these levels. Like, are you personally looking to retire to a small house by the lake in three years, but your company is like far from being maybe profitable or being sold in the next two, three years, then it's going to be very unlikely that your personal vision your personal intention maybe your team's intention and the company's intention as like the the plan the strategy is going to align and check out so that's one i'm checking for intention and how that aligns i'm checking for what i used to call resilience and now i call it survive sustain and thrive So I'm checking whether you are personally on the level right now that is just a survival level, like I'm just hanging on by a thread and I can literally only do like a week more and then I'll I'll just fall apart Uh, or the team or the company then becomes again, it becomes more of a business consideration. So survive, sustain, thrive, and then the third one, the third pillar, if you want to I'm calling that is relationships. It's really the relationship to yourself, the relationship in the private sphere, the relationships among the team, and then the relationship, the mesh of relationships that builds like the organization and, and the company. So three levels, three pillars. I'm exploring those, and very often my clients come in and they have specific topics to solve. So those will have priority anyway.
1: Julius, what kind of questions can we ask ourselves on the survive, sustain, thrive pillar? What kind of like if, if someone's out there going like, whoa, I need like something right now I can do? Like, just give me a couple questions I can ask myself. What kind of questions can we ask ourselves to see where we stand on that, on that pillar?
2: If you think about your work, is it energizing? Is it just like stable, or is it actually detracting energy from you? I think that's the most intuitive and the most simple question that we can all answer for ourselves and then you can make it more granular and say, well, so what is your work made up of? Because especially as founders, you change your roles every three to six months. If you're in growth mode, sometimes you're fundraising, then you have to focus on product and you have to focus more on distribution maybe. And it's perfectly fine that you're saying like, whoa, I mean, this fundraising thing, that's just really, really taxing and like, I'm at the end of my game, but I know it's only two more weeks. Right. So I just had two of my clients raise rounds in very different sizes. Interestingly, one, was like, I don't 1 know million and the other one was like a hundred million, but at the end of the fundraising period, they were both like, okay, I could have done this like four more weeks. Like I was more on the like survive level, but I knew it was going to end. Right. It was detracting energy. It wasn't like even close to adding energy. It was clearly detracting energy and I was on a downward trend. And so that's what I tend to ask. And I try to go deep and understand like what it specifically is that is detracting or contributing additional energy.
0: And how do I actually know whether something is detracting energy or contributing? Like what are like the physical symptoms or what can I observe about myself to judge that? That's also... I often get that question actually from our community.
2: That's a great question. I want to say you can observe that by procrastinating tasks. Like when you see the pattern of like you keep procrastinating the specifications and product, then you know you got something that is either as a task not even spec'd out to the degree that it's actionable for you. Or it's just attracting energy and you're intuitively staying away from it because you don't want to work through it because it's unpleasurable. And we tend to move towards what is pleasurable for us. I think that's a
1: really, really good actually, really good tip, Julius. Because funny enough, I think we demonize or, you know, just we we think of procrastination as this horrible, horrible thing that should never happen. But it can actually be a, a really strong signal, right? If we look at it properly, it can really show us maybe what we're afraid of seeing or something like that and i just procrastinated on a couple tasks which i very much am aware that i do not like and it's always a helpful reminder to hear that it's actually uh it's something you should really sit with at the end really learn from it and then
2: kind of take it into the next phase right yeah another one is in meetings when you notice yourself switching off that's also one of those and this is for me i mean my productivity maybe stack or like setup or the way I look at productivity is a little bit different. So I procrastinate almost everything because I tend to focus on very, very few things. But then I also notice like when I'm in meetings and I switch off very quickly, then I already know like, ah, that's a signal. Yeah. Yeah. Well we'll head back to the
1: coaching layer then. So How can you make the most, on the other side, so you're the coach, this other person sitting there going, how can I make the most out of this experience? And do you have an example that you're willing to share of just a a client or someone that you know who's really nailed it and made the most out of their coaching
2: experience, seen a real
1: transformation
2: or something like that? Yes, in many different ways. So there are many clients who've made, you know, a lot of progress during the coaching. But I want to talk about one client who was at the brink of getting fired from his board at least he thought so and he really worked himself out of that pit that he built for himself and i'm going to repeat that he built it for himself because no one ever on that board and in that company thought about firing him but it was all in his head it was like dark and winter time and it was difficult to fundraise. And he thought they wanted him to step back. And so we had all of these like crisis phone calls and we worked on his mindset and he was very, very diligent in like working through all of these questions as his homework. There are clients with me that work that basically use the coaching sessions as like these sparring sessions. Then they take a couple of like next steps into the company, but he went one level further. He had like these sessions and he implemented the next steps, but then he wrote like two, three page reports on like his further thoughts and what does that mean? And took some of that to his therapist and, and really he, he worked himself out of that hole because at the point where he realized, Oh, actually no one wants to fire me. Oh, that was all my mind doing that then he's like okay well so if my mind can get me in that direction maybe my mind can get me in the other direction and two months later he's like okay that's great i actually have come to the point where i rebuilt my relationships now that the whole kind of you wanted to fire me is out of the way once he put it on the table so people could speak about it people as in his board members his co-founders everyone's like that was not our intention maybe we want to have a chat about that And then from that point of resetting, he was able to then work his way out again. And so now that's like nine months later, he then, he stopped working with me at some point and said, okay, I think I'm fine now. And then like nine months later, he's like, wait a minute. I said, I'm fine now, but I think that's exactly where the work starts. So can we begin again and can we do more work because he basically saw this like from the pit to like a sustainable level, like working himself there. But now he wants to do like the other end of the spectrum and go even further. So I find that a good example, but he puts in a lot of work. That's what I'm I'm trying to say.
1: Cool. Awesome story. And uh, always, I think, inspiring to hear, you know, I think sometimes in those moments, it can be really difficult to see your way out, right? But um, that's a really good example of what seemed like dire straits, (laughs) like changing over the course of a couple a couple of deep dives and heart to heart. So really, really inspiring. I mean, I um, was actually inspired by something you wrote. This, I think, was many years back now. I don't know how many years back. You wrote an article or a blog post on co-founder conflict uh, and relationships, actually. And I thought it was a, a really, really helpful deep dive. It was a long post and I think two parts, actually. And I wanted to hear more about why you wrote that and then we can take it from there. But it was a really meaningful piece. And I think that was also, we also just, all of us were just on the same sort of sifted article about, you know, whether or not you should be leaving a, a company as a founder and uh, shared some thoughts there, but, but curious to hear your thoughts, I guess, in general on just conflict, maybe conflict specific to
2: founders and why you wrote that piece. Why'd you find it important? Oh, so thank you for that question. I generally write about things that I'm trying to figure out. And so if this is like a long piece about conflict, then you can be pretty sure that it was just like trying to figure out the things that I didn't understand about conflict. And really that's what it was. So my own experience with conflict at work is informed by two co-founder conflicts that I went through and like separations. It's multiple kind of co-founder conflicts that I, saw from the board or investor perspective in my venture investor days. There were probably many more that I didn't even know about, as is the case very often with co-founder struggles where it doesn't even make it to the investor side for a long, long time. And then of course, also working with co-founders and on their relationships as a coach. And especially I was struck with in one of those conflicts that I went through myself, I was struck with not being able to figure out what the reason was that, that I myself acted and behaved in ways that felt so unnatural to me and that felt like that wasn't even my personality in the way I wanted to show up. It felt like I was being cast into a role that the play needed, but that I didn't want to play. And still I was in that role and I was just acting it out. So that's what I was trying to uncover as I sat on, on the journey of exploring this kind of co-founder conflict or like conflicts at work piece. And yes, it was very long, like even split in two halves. It was very long. And people were like, this is way too long for like a, for a content marketing article. And then, and now it's like, this is not content marketing. This is just like me, me getting my head straight on the topic i dove into family psychology and like and like of course like coaching literature and like relationship coaching into couples counseling and i just tried to find analogies to what the founder relationship is like and i think what the most insightful pieces were they actually came from like couples work and family systems therapy and i don't Saria, are you a psychologist by training? You are, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was actually also looking into like married couple psychology when I was starting on that mm-hmm. journey. So I ended up in the same corner as you with the Gottman Institute, like studies so of what predicts a successful marriage and stuff.
2: Exactly. And so that's where I was like, huh, interesting. I see the most helpful studies in the field of family systems theory or family systems work. And it reflects my experience of being cast into roles that don't feel like they are what I initially would want actually to say, but it's still what determines my behavior. Yeah. And then I just got a ton of resonance from that article clearly because there is so much more conflict that's going on under the hood that either founders are not willing to share with the public or with their team or with their clients or with their investors, practically not with anyone because it would jeopardize the company. And I can absolutely relate to that, right? Going through this myself multiple times and probably going through this as an investor so many times where I don't even know what happened. I can absolutely relate because that's a fact. And so then I think I built on that. That being said, Co-founder conflicts, I can only like work on like one conflict at a time because they tend to behave in their own schedules and timelines and intensity. And it's not something that you can do in parallel.
1: So I remember one of your pieces on conflict resolution. It was a big article you wrote. Why did you write this? And what do you think leaders out there need to
2: know about conflict? While that relates to like positions and interests, as in trying to move away from this negotiation situation where you're just like trading positions in for one another to actually start with what you personally need. I think adding to that, one of the things that is so important, especially for high stakes conversations that are conflicting is to make sure that there is a piece of the relationship that remains intact so that you can continue to have a conversation. Why am I saying this? On the scale of co-founder conflicts, I had teams that would not speak to each other at all unless they were in a session with me and they would only speak to me about each other. It was not a conversation between them. It was him to me and him to me and then like back and forth so that's one extreme they're actually not speaking to each other then there's another extreme for a team that is splitting but that is meeting up in a room with me and they're joking and then they're talking about the terms along which they're actually splitting up as a team and why is that because they still have a personal relationship and they're making it a priority because they're connecting as humans but they're Realizing, and this is of course like the second example, this is like months in into the work, they're realizing we like each other personally and we would like that to continue to be the case. But as a work team, it's not working out for us for several reasons. So if there is one thing that you can take away or like the audience can take away, it's focus on the things in the relationship that actually work. And make sure that you also make those a priority, because those are the insurance policy that whenever things get difficult, you can come to the table and speak with each other.
0: I have a follow-up on this, actually. So full disclosure for everyone who's listening, who actually did uh, do some sessions with us previously in our three founder constellation, Charles was still on board, for anyone who knows a little bit about a bunch history. We started actually with three co-founders and you guys has helped us through a few challenging moments, actually. So thank you for that. And I remember you giving us this advice as well and it has served us really well and it has enabled us to actually work through conflicts in a quite peaceful, uh constructive manner. I found it quite abstract back then, I remember, to live up to this kind of advice in a way like that. How do you actually, what I'm trying to say is like, how do you actually focus on the positive? So, like, what are kind of tips that you can give people to, like, do you celebrate them? Do you talk about them? Do you pat each other on the back? Like, what do you do with this, like, islands of understanding or islands of uh, constructive overlap or however we call them?
2: Typically, I'd ask the question, like, what is the thing that you do outside of work that connects you together? Because most of the conflicts are conflicts that are at work. And they come from various different places, like maybe you're not the right fit for the role anymore, or maybe you've never been the right fit for the role, but we just like each other too much on the personal side that, you know, stopping to work with each other wouldn't make a lot of sense. But like, what are those things, activities that you do with each other? Let's see. So there was this one team that I worked with and they really connected about soccer, football, German teams, of course. And so that's where they would get together outside of work and just have this like, wonderful relationship as friends and then when they would get to work they would be able to say we had a great night out yesterday now let's talk about the difficult stuff and this is again like it seems i know it's like abstract but then when you make it about specific activities that's when you say oh of course like this is the thing that we do together outside of the work context
1: you also do a lot of work around the intersection of mind, body, and performance. Let's start with what is high performance, really?
2: So I talked about resilience and moving resilience to survive, sustain, and thrive. But before that, it was like performance. And I felt so uncomfortable with this like notion of performance because most of the people that I work with, their problem is they want to perform and they attach performance as in like Higher, faster, better, more intense. Like performance seems to be linked to like increasing levels of intensity mostly. And I think what we're not taking into account is that specifically for founders, if they're thinking sprint, they need to sprint for about seven to 10 years to make it to a level where they can actually take off for long, long periods of time and recover. And no sprinter in the world is going to sprint a marathon. That's a completely different distance. And so that is something that I want to always bring in the picture. Hence all those questions around time spans and intentions and like, what's your, like, what's your strategy? Like how long can you hold this tempo? But then also when, now that we say, okay, it's not, High performance in the moment its long-term performance, right? It's sustainable performance. Then I say it's, it moves from like high performance to optimal performance, like the level that you can sustain and it makes you a great founder over the long-term. But then also in our tech capitalistic world, performance is most often associated with cognitive performance, right? You know, how much brain power do you have? Like how much, how quick can you think? And when we think about our nervous system, there is a cognitive and rational level. There's an emotional level. There's a somatic. So that's the kind of the body level. And all of these levels work together and they're interconnected. And so when we talk about performance, it's not only the cognitive one, but it is the emotional one. It is the somatic one. And so in recognizing that those levels affect each other we can actually now start to do emotional work emotional work doesn't mean like we cry together but like we figure out what we feel about some of these issues that are at stake or at discussion or what's happening in our bodies as we are discussing or living through some of those situations and that can affect our thinking that can affect thinking as in cognition And the other way around, we can think about, like, and discuss what our emotions are. We can label our emotions. We can label what our body feels. And this is how we're connecting thinking, cognition, with emotional or somatic work. So it's all wrapped together. And so kind of a holistic, optimal performance, that's what I want to talk about. But that's a whole kind of series of sessions to get people to the point where they can navigate that multidimensional space.
0: So now, of course, the master follow-up question, as always, with like all the tactical tips that we are Mm -hmm. trying to enable for all of you who's listening, if performance is something that is long-term and also multidimensional, that sounds really complicated. Yes. (laughs) So how can I actually, as a founder, as a manager, as a leader, as a professional, how can I manage my own performance? So how can I actually get to high performance levels? And how can I deal also with performance drops when they occur?
2: Right. Let's go very specific. Okay. And talk about an exercise that you can do. When I talk about the, like the nervous system being a whole body system, and for you to be able to affect your nervous system through things that you can mindfully do consciously do, then whenever I'm getting into a critical situation, I want to calm down my nervous system, my autonomic nervous system, but that's just a like, technical term. I want to calm down my nervous system through breathing out longer than I breathe in. Five seconds, breathing out, three seconds, breathing in. Five seconds, breathing out, three seconds, breathing in. Whatever the time spans actually are, there's different techniques out there, but really it's like longer out than in that's one thing that you can do and it will calm down your nervous system. And that works on a somatic level. You'll feel you'll get more calm just after like repeating that for like five, six times. And you can do it in a meeting room, right when the discussion is still going on, no one will notice. And that will affect how you're perceiving emotions. And that will also affect your calmness when you think through topics. So breathing out longer than you breathe in, easy. Number one, number two, forward motion, just take a walk. Best of it, take a walk in nature and it will also calm down your nervous system. Right. And this is because parts of our brain react to forward motion. And like when we have optical flow that moves past our eyes. So not going on the treadmill, that's not going to work. You actually need to go outside, and then walk and the nature is not part of that research, but like, just take a walk. And it's so easy, right? But those are those ground floor tips that get you into the game. We don't need to be all, you know, highly scientific about like, here's what neuroscience tells us about blah, 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 blah. blah. Like breathing exercise and taking walks. And of course you can get into meditation, all that, but we're not even there yet. So this is as pragmatic as we we want to get, I guess.
0: Very, very useful. Thank you for literally phrasing it into like exercises that everyone can try on their own. I can definitely confirm that the breathing thing works. I use it often. I think my only follow-up question on this one, and again, thank you for being so, so actionable in your advice, is what if I feel... I'm slipping. And I actually, in my coaching career, also got these kind of questions very often from what I, I don't know, what we used to call high performers, people that are really oriented to like maximize their contribution over time, maximize their impact. And we always kind of encountered the situation with actually very different people in very different roles. And I can confirm that I also face those often. It's like, you keep going, you start improving in your role, you start improving in your sports, some vicious, whatever else you have. And there comes a moment where something happens, you are thrown out of your routine, there is some unexpected event, and you slip out of those habits. And then you start kind of like going down a path where you look back and you're like, oh, I want to go back to this point where I was so fit, where I I had such a good sleep routine, I had such a good routine at work, and somehow it happened that I slipped. How do I get back there? So I think this is also a very common challenge that I would love to hear your advice on.
2: That's such a great question. And I think it happens to all of us. I more or less recently became a father. And after the birth of my daughter, I kind of fell out of my workout routine ish. And there was no reason why I couldn't go for a run for 30 minutes, but for some reason I didn't find into it. And one of the things that I noticed and I think is probably part of the answer here is what about that? thing that happened to you, like you being fired or, you know, you now taking on the role of a father and like, there's another system that is called the family that you haven't really considered yet. What about that? Is it that you haven't processed yet? Because clearly there is something that is still keeping you and keeping your attention somewhere else. Like go there because you know, all the ingredients that are needed for you to go and work out or for you to actually be the kind of, let's say, leader, the kind of CEO that you want to be because it worked before, but something is still interfering and there's a lack of understanding of what that is. And so most times it is a lack of making the space to process whatever has happened to say, thanks, now I've learned from that. They can take a quick pause and then it can regroup and actually build either a new routine or like return into the routine that I know worked for me. But I think what we're generally very bad at is recognizing endings in transition phases, because what you're referring to is like, I'm going through a transition. I'm being, I quit my job or I was fired from my job, or I don't know, my company is going through a a tough time and we needed to let go a number of people, whatever it is. Right. And to recognize this was then. That has ended. I can consciously say that that's an ending, say goodbye and then move on. But we're very bad at saying goodbye.
0: I actually, when going through preparing for the interview, I found a phrase that I think you use in one or two of your, of your posts actually, which uh, is where attention goes, energy flows. Tell us more about this. What does this mean and how can we take advantage of it or how can use it?
2: Yes. There's many ways to approach this. I'll try to, to quickly show both and then we can follow one of those paths. So when we look at the research and there's brain areas, brain networks that light up, especially when we see opportunities that align with what we state our goals, right? When we say goals, it could be intentions, it could be our plans, our vision, where our attention goes. So our brain is trained to see the things that we direct our attention to and that we state that our intention is, let's say I am in the market for, and we are in the market for a co-founder, a full-time person who is going to take our side project journey. You mentioned it in the beginning to the next level. And so whenever I walk around Berlin, which is full of entrepreneurial people, I am going around town. Well, a question in my mind, could that be a good co-founder? Are you connected to someone who might know someone who could be the person who's taking our company to the next level in full time? Right. And so this is where my attention is. And because I made that not only to myself, but very publicly, I made that commitment to find someone who's going to take the company, take the majority of the equity, work with us as passive investors and, and continue that. That is going to be where energy flows, right? In more technical terms, on the neuroscientific research, that's called the salience network. Um, and I don't want to get, I'm not a neuroscientist at all, but we can maybe link the research in the show notes. So that's one. And then number two, again, with Journey, we recently did, um, a um, Product Hunt launch. So Product Hunt is a product discovery platform and we launched our product there and by coincidence, we had the survey up on our website. And because we had so much traffic on our website, we like five days later discovered that we now have a survey with like 1300 responses on it. We're like, Oh, interesting. Let's see what it says. And so there was an interesting discovery. One 70% of people who were resonating with our product said, I want to have like a major change in my life. I'm not happy. And I want change of those 70%. Only 20% actually wrote down their goals. Actually were like, I want to change and this is how I want to change. And I can write that down. 80% weren't even able to write them down. Some of them said, yeah, you know, I have them in my head, whatever that means. And so the biggest differentiator that you can make to actually reaching goals is to just like make a statement about. That is what I want to write it down. And that's another piece of research where like writing down your goals makes it way more likely for you to actually reach those goals. So this is where attention goes energy flows.
0: Super, super um, spot on. Specifically, the first example I think resonates a lot. As a founder, we always have problems, I think, that are not so easy to resolve. Like when you were saying oh, maybe the task isn't like specified enough. I was thinking about most of my tasks. I'm like, none of these tasks are specified enough. Um, at least, and I think I'm the worst with my own tasks. I'm trying to do much better for my team when I delegate. I'm like try, trying to be very diligent. I think for my own tasks, I'm actually not doing this. I just realized. But it's definitely specifically in those environments where you are not having so much clarity about like, this is how, I find a great founder for my company. This is how I find a great designer in our case or our team. Um, I think just basically focusing all your energy towards that goal and and basically, um, yeah, like keep that target in constant focus when you're actually moving around opportunities, when you're interacting with people. I think it's such a great way to phrase what I think we kind of intuitively know because I think when we talk about these things, it's kind of like, Oh, when we focus on it full time, which basically means we are of course that focusing on it full time. There's never full time focus on anything, but, um, it's more like we have it in the back of our minds constantly and it plays a much, much, much bigger role than everything else. And so you kind of the effort or the energy follows that. And then there's outcomes eventually.
2: And that is the notion on which we actually build journey. So just like a quick word on, on what it really is. It's pretty simple. Journey is a tool that helps you focus on your long-term intentions. And how do we do that? We first help you figure out when I say long-term we're speaking about three months because no one can actually tell you their like 10, 10 year vision, but three months is like far enough in the future, but not so far in the future. So we help you figure out what your three month intentions are. Then every week we're going to ask you, Hey, if you want to get there, like what's the one thing you can do this week? And then every day we ask you, well, you said this was your weekly goal. Like, what is the one thing that you can do today to reach that one goal? And so we're basically making it a very simple, like a three minute ritual every morning to just focus on like the one thing that you can do today that that you can get done today in order to reach what you have defined is the most important goal this week, or this quarter, three-month time horizon.
1: So Julius, if you could go back in time and give your younger self advice or one or two leadership tips, what would they
2: be? Always lean into what you are naturally drawn to and what what makes you stand out. This is, I mean, this sounds totally like you know, blanket advice. Like that's of course what every book is going to say. But um, at, when I wrapped up my college, everyone was going in, into either consulting or banking. And so I thought I'm going to get into consulting because that's what you do. And I, I made up a case where I made myself believe that that's what I wanted. I didn't know what consulting felt like because I had never worked in consulting before. And at that point I had already for three years, organized entrepreneurial community events, like startup weekends, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that format, but like a hackathons, right? Hackathons is what they're called now. So I had been a hackathon organizer for, for three years already, but I told myself that consulting logically is what I wanted to be in. And like 12 months later, um, I left consulting completely frustrated. Because I got in after two weeks, I knew this was not going to be the thing for me. And then for 11 and a half months, I was trying to figure out my exit strategy. Um, and so had I just leaned in to the fact that I was very much interested in building communities, participating in communities and starting projects while everyone else was going into banking and consulting, I could have just leaned into that and look where I ended up. Venture starting companies, coaching the venture community—like I'm right there. Like I could have known that right from the start, but I didn't. And there is even points in like my high school career where you could have read that off of my actions and just extrapolated that into today. But no, I needed to go where everyone else was going. So <laughs> I think that's just—I'll I'll end at that. That's like the number one thing. My intuition was already there, but I wasn't able to like. Parse it and 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 interpret it.
0: I will ask a follow up question to this because I think this is at the core of what most of us struggle. And I know you've given us so much time; I really appreciate it. But this is this one has to be has has to be followed up. How do we gain the confidence to do that, though? So I think I definitely agree with you, and I think it is a it is an advice that one hears often, and I think it's not. Uh, less true because of that. But I think the tricky part about it is that when you're in the beginnings of your career, when you're in a transition period, you're insecure for whatever reason, it's really challenging to do that. If it's a path that isn't as, as, as common, as walked, you can't see it. That's typically what pushes people to walk the path that is more visible and tangible, right? Do you have any advice there? Like how to trust yourself more? How to find that confidence?
2: rather than how to trust yourself more, I have two questions that will hopefully help you get going. One is what is the smallest step that you can take into that direction? So dear Julius at age, what was it? 22, 23, 24. Dear Julius, what's the smallest step you can, what's the smallest experiment you can run right now? that will take you into that direction rather than away from it by joining a big consulting firm and just like traveling all across countries, solving other people's problems. Um, what's that? And now that you've defined the smallest step into that direction, is it safe enough to try it? It just needs to be safe enough to try it out. You don't need to bet your career. You don't need to bet your life, but just take one step. And I think for transitions, we're always like blowing it up to extreme proportions. And of course it matters because we're talking about the directions of our lives, but we can just take it one step at a time and we can always change, but that's what it is. What's the one small step that you can do now. And is that safe enough to try?
0: That's the best way we could have closed this amazingly inspiring conversation. Thank you so much to us for, Spending the time, giving the advice, being so open, and um, really, really can encourage everyone to check out Journey, but also uh, check out um, Judith's work. Uh, We'll drop the LinkedIn uh, profile, of course, uh, down below and uh, link a few of the articles that we were referencing. It's been a really, really great conversation. Thank you again.
2: Thank you so much. All the best to you too.
0: Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter. At Daria Kutnik and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice.:
1: Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think.
0: And that's a wrap. We're your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.